Planning to pursue a degree in healthcare? Discover what the International Medical University has to offer at the IMU Virtual Open Day, including scholarships and bursaries worth up to 100%. IMU is Malaysia's first private medical university, awarded the self-accreditation status by MQA and a Satara six-star rating for two consecutive years. See you online January 24th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Register at imu.edu.my slash open day. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. Legacies are always difficult things to secure. Former presidents, prime ministers often found libraries and foundations to secure their place in history. In the tech world, Legacies are viewed less positively as dormant code from long disused languages that can suddenly rise up and cause chaos. With us is Matt Splainer-in-Chief, Matt Armitage, who is no stranger to being dormant. Really, Matt? Matt Splainer-in-Chief? Hey, Rich. Well, you know, it looks like the US has a, a new president, so come January, there'll be space for a new reigning narcissist. and. I want it to be me, because I've been denying reality for years, and I quite fancy having millions of Twitter followers who'll do anything I ask them to. Uh, the first person I'm going to go after is Jeff Sandu, the original you, uh -huh. uh, because, you know, that guy is walking, talking fake news, and I want to drown him in millions of peach emojis. But, but why? Well, because I think he'll find it funny, or, or rather, I'll find it funny, and as I only see the world reflected in myself, that means that he'll find it funny too. Got it. I, anyway, this week we're going to talk about legacy systems and crusading cowboys. On last week's episode, we laid out the case for breaking the internet in order to fix it. So we were talking more about the social or societal side of the internet and that maybe we should add the term frictionless to that horrible word disruption and bury them with the remains of some accelerator lab somewhere. Whereas today we're talking about legacy systems and the threat they pose to the internet. Well, one of the things I've said repeatedly this year is how resilient the internet has been. Obviously, it hasn't been perfect, but it's never seen the kind of stresses and importance that we've placed on it this year. So as much as we've joked for years about virtual relationships replacing physical ones, that's a purpose that the net was evolving towards rather than one that it was actually or actively designed for. Now, obviously, that ignores the hard work of thousands and thousands of people who are working hard to make sure that their bit of the system carries on and keeps functioning. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, the DNS people, the ISP people, uh, the USB and the USP people. You know, obviously, I'm just putting letters together now, but you get the point. Yes, the, yes. the Internet has become the centre of our lives. Everyone is a digital citizen because there's no other choice. Uh, I interviewed someone in the urban planning world a few weeks ago, and she admitted that before the pandemic, she really hadn't used uh, QR codes before. And we've all had to up our game with the way we use tech this year. 
And that goes for hardware makers too. Mm. You know, I'm an iPhone user and that ecosystem has been incredibly slow in making it easy to use QR codes. It's been a long way behind Android in that respect. Let me guess. Uh, you want to tell us that you were wrong and that the net is more fragile than we thought? Well, sort of, I suppose. Uh, I want to talk about that aspect of it that is legacy systems. I think the last time we talked about these was a couple of years ago. And I know I lean quite heavily on the new scientist for this show. But there's a really fascinating piece that was published recently titled How COVID-19 Has Exposed a Huge Computing Disaster in the Making by Ed Gent. Once again, I have to keep repeating this, mm. new scientist, get better headlines. Uh, you can <laughs> immediately see um, how that headline would speak to me, though. I think I should set up a Google alert for the word disaster. Aren't you a legacy system? Well, in that I'm a collection of tired old subroutines holding my head above water in a rapidly changing digital environment, then yes, and proud to call myself so. <laughs> and it's a similar story with the legacy systems that we're talking about today. You know, we seem to use the term obsolete for any tech that's more than two years old. And that can be unfair. Mm. I'm guilty of that, probably more guilty than most people. And a lot of the time, those legacy systems are actually still fully functional. You know, by and large, they're working very well. But they may be coded with languages or parameters that have fallen out of fashion or been replaced with tools that are far more powerful and flexible. But the key point here is that they are still operational and they're doing their jobs as they're supposed to. So I guess there's a parallel here with what we often discuss about algorithms. In that no one is really sure what will happen when they intersect and interact with one another. Well, yeah, it's quite interesting in that respect that some of our new technology and older tech are having similar destabilizing effects. So when we've talked about legacy systems before, we've talked about some of the code that underpins the internet or the fact that NASA used to have to scour eBay to find components that were compatible with some of its space tech. Mm. But we also talk about the need to preserve these legacy systems. Otherwise, things like file formats, the contents of old drives, all sorts of digital technology is going to be lost to us forever. Now, is it much of an issue, though, when we think about digital technology that's more than a couple of decades old, there can't be too much of it left? Well, I think that's what a lot of people think. But, you know, you'd be surprised. I mean, uh, I'm sure you might mirror this, but I still have a stack of late 90s and early noughties era floppy drives in mm. a box somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't open them. Uh, and they're the only record that I have of a lot of the things that I was writing for magazines and websites and newspapers back then. And with some of the early word processing files, I'd probably find it difficult to open them, even if I could read the drives. Uh, some of them were written on a, a Philips Pocket PC, which will mean absolutely nothing to <laughs> anyone except the three of us who bought them. Plus, you know, we have to remember that the cutting edge of uh, today is the obsolescence of tomorrow. So there's no real reason to think people will still be opening JPEGs and PDFs in 50 years' time. Mm. And that's why there are various digital museums that devote themselves to preserving all of these legacy formats. The bigger issue here is the systems that 
keep on keeping on. Uh, let's not forget that NASA's Voyager 1 and 2 space probes, which have now left our solar system, were launched in 1977. That's over 40 years ago. And they're still sending data back to us. You know, we literally have toasters now that have more computing power than these spacecraft. But these machines are still going strong, even though they've got little more than a calculator on board. And how are these legacy systems uh, manifesting themselves as threats today then? Well, partly because of the coronavirus. So a lot of these systems tend to underpin national or regional government functions. So things like tax and financial systems, health services, pensions, benefits. Uh, you may find companies that have built their own networks and run software that might have been created or, or very heavily customized to meet specific needs that they have. Mm. So this year has turned the worlds of bureaucracy and systems management essentially upside down. We've seen hospitals inundated with coronavirus patients and their digital systems have to try and cope with tracking everything that's going on in those very chaotic environments. We've seen record numbers of people filing unemployment benefit claims. Uh, companies that are trying to graft cloud-based data sharing systems onto systems that were designed to be self-contained and often offline uh, so that their staff can work from home. And all of these systems have been creaking and groaning like me when I do yoga. Mm. Uh, in fact, I did one pose this morning that made my neck make a noise like a cheese grater on a blackboard, which is <laughs> a little bit worrying. Uh, but just like me, you know, some of those systems are falling over and collapsing under the strain. Like the failures in the US's uh, coronavirus unemployment payout systems that we had earlier this year. Yeah, I'm sure that there are any number of uh, BFM shows that have covered that topic in depth this year, so I won't go into it too deeply. In brief, the US unemployment rate skyrocketed in uh, April from about 4.5% to over 14% as companies closed their doors and they laid off and furloughed staff. So the systems that were supposed to automatically processed the claims so that claimants could get their benefits simply fell over right. under that that demand. Uh, telephone contact systems were overwhelmed. The web registration portals in some states either crashed or hung. People spent days trying to submit applications for benefits and for business relief schemes, and they sometimes had to wait months for the money. For some, the systems simply lost their applications, but without them knowing because they'd been sent email acknowledgements. And of course, you know, this isn't just limited to old systems. Uh, in the week that I prepared this show, the UK was experiencing problems with its COVID track and trace system, which, of course, is brand new. Now, why weren't government officials better prepared? Well, as New Scientist points out, uh, we assume that because the system worked yesterday, it's going to work perfectly today mm. and with a bit of luck tomorrow as well. So we assume that when organisations upgrade their systems, you know, they're throwing out all the old stuff uh, and getting uh, and new stuff. That's often not the case for reasons we'll get into after the break. A lot of systems now resemble buildings in favelas. People simply build the new stuff on top of the old stuff and hope that the old stuff doesn't collapse. So you might be using a glitzy app with all the latest functionality, 
but it could have been grafted onto a system that was grafted onto another system and on and on until you get down to the bedrock code or software that could actually be decades old. And for reasons we'll also get into after the break, the people who understand and can repair and maintain that underlying code might have long retired or simply forgotten how to work with those languages. In case Matt has made you wonder, your smartphone is very unlikely to self-destruct because of a glitch in an ancient matrix. And don't worry, there is an antidote to the gloom. We'll be right back after these messages. You are listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. Spanish feudal mentality. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. This is uh, Matt Splained. And before the break, uh, Matt was making a case for old people. Sorry, I mean um, old code. Uh, being a threat to the internet as, as we know it. Did we talk about any of the programming languages, Matt? Well, that's as good as any place uh, to start, I think. So listeners will uh, most probably know already, I can't code. I'm not going to bore you with the reasons why. There are literally thousands of different coding languages and standards, though. Some are evolutions or branches of other languages. Others are standalone. So some of the, uh, the languages are quite well known. C, C Sharp, C++. Python, Java, JavaScript, Google's Go. These are some of the ones that you might have heard of. Mm. So you have this shifting landscape. You have new programming languages and ecosystems that you know claim to give you more power and functionality. Uh, we talked a couple of months back, I think, about AI chip makers starting to make the move into software as well, so that developers have a ready-made coding environment uh, to to make use of. Mm. And people might be surprised at how dynamic the coding landscape actually is. So do you think it's more a case of uh, the languages falling out of fashion rather than dying? Well, you know, we use the blanket term coders, which can give the impression that it is a monolithic scene. Uh, mm. There are often dominant languages at any given time, and it's trend-based in a sense. It's determined by factors like cost, utility, of course, availability of personnel who can actually read and write the language. It's a bit like the ubiquity of Microsoft Office. Companies may look for something that's easy to implement and support, but enough people start to shift to alternatives that it begins to change that central conversation, that dominance, and shifts the ecosystems in a new direction. Mm. So to, to answer that question... That old code, those old languages, they don't disappear. A uh, new scientist uses the example of Fortran. Now, wow. Rich, you're probably yeah, you're probably old enough to remember a techno outfit from the early <laughs> 1990s called Fortran Five. Yeah. Um, now, Fortran uh, is a, a language that was developed by IBM in the 1950s for just general businesses. It's been out of favor for decades, but it is still used. It's used by physicists and mathematicians because it has this amazing ability to run multiple calculations in parallel at very high speeds. And then, of course, there are those uh, hobbyists who want to revive the um, old languages. Well, I saw a recent crowdfund for a new version of the uh, 80s gateway PC, the ZX Spectrum, 
but with modern processors and graphics cards. So there are a lot of these modern reboots of classic computer systems. Mm. There's a, a great Twitter account that a friend led me to recently, which is the BBC Microbot. So BBC Basic is a, a programming language that was used in some early home PCs back in the 1980s. If you paste a chunk of BBC Basic and tweet it at the bot, it will turn it into a graphic GIF for you. Uh, it's great fun. You can find that at BBC Microbot on Twitter. It's funny you say that. They were teaching me BBC Basic at school. Um, but anyway, that shows how long ago that was. But that still doesn't explain how or, or why that code is threatening the internet. Yeah, uh, and as I'm a little bit older than you, my school had one BBC <laughs> microcomputer. Um, no, so I mentioned that House of Cards thing before the break, uh, new code built on uh, top of old code. Mm. So when we talk about the issues in the US with the unemployment payment problems and the systems breaking down, a lot of those systems were based on a language called COBOL. Now, this stands for the Common Business Oriented Language. Uh, it was released again by IBM way back in 1959. I mean, I, I find that quite astonishing. That's amazing. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it was easy to use. It was designed for main uh, mainframes and it became a mainstay of global business. So what's probably going to be more of a surprise to people is that it still is a mainstay of global business. Mm. So COBOL, a 60-year-old programming language, is still something that most of us use on a regular or, or even a daily basis. So the New Scientist quotes uh, Reuters reports that 43% of the planet's banking systems run on COBOL and 95% of our ATM transactions still rely on the language. That what? is quite <laughs> mind-boggling, yeah. How many of the big tech companies today are even half as old as that code? Mm. And it's the same language that underpinned those aging US government welfare programs. Uh, a further pro uh, problem is that COBOL isn't really taught at universities anymore. So if you put out a call for COBOL programmers, there's a shrinking pool of talent that's going to answer that, that call. And how did they resolve the problem? Well, it was a bit like a, a real-life version of that movie Space Cowboys, where a bunch of retired astronauts uh, come back to work and save the world. In New Jersey, the governor appealed for volunteers, and a bunch of retired coders became the frontline defenders of the unemployment system in that state. IBM released a free training course so that other coders could get up to speed, and come and help get these critical payments and processing systems back online. Isn't that the way to go then, uh, to train more people in those languages? Well, it's human nature. You know, you want to go where the action and the excitement is. And that usually means doing something that's current. Mm. You know, coding is like any language. You can pick up the, the basics quite fast, but it takes a long time to get the complexity and the nuance uh, to learn the, the shortcuts and the coding equivalent of slang. Mm. Especially, you know, you need to know how to use pre-existing blocks of code and have a good understanding of how those blocks are going to interact with uh, each other. 
And that's without the added complication of understanding how a specific system or piece of software in that language has been built. So you've got to be able to really understand it, to see it, so that you can understand those idiosyncrasies. Now, I know this answer is probably going to be a little bit more complex, but many people are probably wondering, why not just upgrade it, you know, like a phone, throw the old obsolete stuff away and, you know, like you would your old phone and get something new? Well, obviously, that's a logical response. And in some small businesses, that might be possible without too much cost or interruption to your business operations. I think part of the answer to the question goes to our fundamental lack of understanding of how the digital world actually works. Upgrading systems is expensive and slow. Mm. You don't just plug in a new server or a mainframe and all the computers connect seamlessly and, uh, you know, you're working without any faults and working at warp speed. And every time you do this bolt-on of new technology on top of old, you're kind of making the problem worse because your system might actually consist of this patchwork of different languages. Mm. So you have to figure out where the problem is and then what are the implications of changing it to fix it? Will it affect the systems based on the next language that's daisy-chained? And so on and so on. And what about the uh, cost aspect of all of this? How much is it? You know, how much does it cost? Uh, I mean, these are just outrageous sums of money. I mean, I'll use some of the examples that the New Scientist gives. But uh, back in 2012, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia replaced its core COBOL platform with uh, software developed by the German company SAP. Uh, it took them five years, and it cost around 750 million Australian dollars. Uh, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the GAO, has highlighted uh, a U.S. internal revenue service system that's in desperate need of upgrading. Now, the cost of that has been estimated at around 1.6 billion U.S. dollars. And the contrast is maintaining the current system only costs them around five and a half million dollars a year. So you can see how big that difference is. So that's where this tendency to think, well, it's okay today, let's hope it's okay tomorrow, and we'll worry about it when it breaks. That's where that comes from. Mm. And hopefully, when it breaks is going to be another fiscal year, or even better, it's going to be somebody else's problem. And of course, then there are the costs of uh, getting it wrong. In 2018, the British High Street Retail Bank, TSB, wanted to switch its operation to newer computing platforms. And then? So why didn't they? Well, no, they did, but everything just went haywire. So we got chaos for over a week. The bank couldn't even tell how many customers uh. were locked out of their accounts. Even worse, people were gaining access to other people's accounts instead of their own. So they could see these other people's balances, their account numbers, and their transaction records. Mm. In the end... Those software problems cost the bank over three hundred million pounds. It cost the CEO his job, and eighty thousand customers closed their accounts and moved to competitor banks. Mm. So back to that earlier question about swapping old for new, there are huge reputational risks as well as the financial ones. So you have to be a really brave CTO or CFO to say, "Let's go ahead. Let's uproot everything." Fair enough. Uh 
do we know how many systems worldwide are at risk of uh, w- with this? No, uh, and that's a staggering piece of information in, in and <laughs> yeah. of itself. Uh, again, from the the New Scientist piece, the um, the US uh, GAO it identified. 10 systems with major legacy issues. Now, they included some fairly scary systems like uh, the ones that keep the US Air Force's planes ready to fight, as well as systems that operate major dams and power stations. The uh, Division of Homeland Security that's been in the news the last few weeks for saying that the US elections were the most secure in history, well, Mm. as well as securing voting machines and uh, electoral systems, that department also travels the country helping state governments reinforce their utilities and critical infrastructure against hacking, phishing and ransomware attacks. So are we likely to see more of these outages and attacks? Undoubtedly. Uh, You know, we've talked ourselves to death about work from home this year, but we know that hackers and fishers and attackers have uh, have turned their sights on companies that have recently introduced practices that open up their systems to allow their workers greater remote and collaborative working access. Mm. What the, the scale and implications of that are, we don't know yet because it's too new. Certainly the uh, UK's Financial Conduct Authority says that uh, outages at financial institutions are growing, partly because of criminals, but also because these institutions are racing to graft features onto these creaking systems so that they can compete with uh, a lot of these nimble startup fintech companies. Mm. Uh, One that we do know about, so um, this was big news a couple of years ago, Equifax, the US uh, credit scoring agency that was hacked in 2017, and the records of nearly 150 million people were stolen. Uh, And a a report by the U.S. House of Representatives into that hack accused the company of relying on legacy systems that had well-known security risks. Now, look, there there has to be some uh, glimmers in the darkness. And apart from reactivating retired coders and training a new generation, um, what other solutions are being developed? Well, the solutions may not please uh, some people. So obviously, as a lot of this legacy tech was originally developed by IBM, the company is at the forefront of efforts to make managing and maintaining these old systems easier. But that brings us into this AI territory again. Uh, We've talked many Uh times about the risk of putting large chunks of the world into the hands of opaque machine-governed systems. Unfortunately, we're currently putting our faith in systems that we've simply forgotten how to maintain. Now, it might sound like the plot of an old sci-fi movie, that human society is gradually heading back towards its pre-electricity age, simply because no one has the knowledge or understanding to maintain automated systems that are crumbling and decaying. So AI is our best option. It would seem like that. You know, the companies like IBM and agencies like DARPA are developing AI-based systems that can analyze that old code and figure out the underlying architecture and what does what and connects to what where. It can then make recommendations for the best way to modernize and how to maintain without damaging the ongoing functionality of the overall system. Mm. But of course, that requires another layer of trust. 
uh, we then have to have trust in the recommendations that the AI is making, especially when it's gaming scenarios and situations that it doesn't really have any way to explain to us. Mm. Of course, you know, we're not getting into those extreme situations is a better solution. Uh, it's perhaps inevitable for publicly funded infrastructure where political priorities often govern the pace of change. But it can be more cost effective for commercial companies to change rather than get into these uh, legacy situations. Uh, the industry uh, also has a role in playing up the importance of the teams who maintain these systems and, of course, making legacy system maintenance seem like an attractive career path rather than a dead end. We really need the industry to shift its mindset. The retired coders who helped to fix New Jersey systems were dubbed the COBOL Cowboys. We need things to look cooler because one thing we're going to need is an army of mathematical gunslingers to keep us safe. You have been listening to Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9. If you missed any part of this show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally download your podcast from. And if you want more information, head over to culturepop.com. This is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.